Well, good morning. You know, as we're going through this series on why we believe what we believe, uh, there are some startling, startling beliefs out there. People believe uh, some of the darndest things. Um, I remember a, a story back in 1997. It was a story about a group of followers who were living down in, um, where was that, Rancho Santa Fe, California. And um, these followers of this guy named, um, well, he called himself Bo and his former leader, he. Uh, she died, but uh, his name was uh, Marshall Applegate, and Marshall Applegate was the founder of what was called Heaven's Gate, and Marshall Applegate uh, led these people into a mass suicide. There were 39 of them, half women and half men, middle-aged people, found dead in this mansion that was uh, down there in Rancho Santa Fe, California. They had rented this mansion and were living there, and um, one day they were found dead. And this, you know, it was, it was uh, investigated as to what caused this mass suicide, and it, it was determined that, you know, uh, by the tapes and the and the messages that Marshall had left behind, that he taught them that he had taught these people that he was the gate to heaven, that he was the very gateway to heaven, and and then he further taught them that with the uh, approach of this comet, the Hale Bob comet that there was this spaceship on the backside of the comet that was going to come and take them together with him to heaven, so it was time to go. So they weren't really thinking of themselves as committing suicide. They thought they were just shedding their physicality so they could get on this um, UFO and go to heaven. The, the, the uh, UFO was supposed to transport them, and I, I was kind of wondering, you know, if they needed the UFO to get to heaven... What were they going to use to get to the UFO on the backside of this comet? Kind of confused me. I never figured that one out. But uh, in any event, uh, this belief, though it was so ridiculous, was absolutely believed by these people. Uh, their history is full of people who are claiming to be the Christ, who are claiming to be the Messiah, who are claiming to be uh, the Anointed One, and it's just absolutely crazy. I remember the People's Temple, uh, Jim Jones. You know, he had convinced people that he was Christ, and he did it with some, some, you know, I guess, great rhetoric, but also he had some tricks up his sleeve. One of the things that Jim Jones did was he hooked up this vat of wine uh, up in the attic above his his um, basement, and he plumbed it to a sink that was down in the basement, and he had a lever underneath the sink that uh, when he prayed he could... T- uh, switch the lever and and the water that was coming out then would turn into wine and so he had his believers believing that he could turn water into wine of course we know that they all killed themselves at his leading Uh, you have today you know the Moonies uh, Reverend Moon believes he's the second coming of Christ and that his wife is the Holy Spirit Uh, you have of course Islamic terroristic thinking today where people actually believe uh, and, and if you guys are all interested in this idea there's, there's not 70 virgins. There's 70 rooms with each room has 70 virgins in them. The idea is that uh, that's what will happen. God will reward these men, and they will go to heaven and, and receive these 70 rooms with 70 r- virgins for what? For blowing up innocent people. People actually believe that. Very startling and yet very ridiculous ideas. Um, the question I was wondering about is, do we believe any startling ideas? And we do. We believe startling ideas, too. Uh, and, 
you know, you're faced with this idea, are startling ideas just necessarily false because they are so startling? Not necessarily. You know, in 19, excuse me, in 1553, a startling idea came on the scientific scene when um, Nicholas Copernicus published his startling ideas that the earth actually rotated around the sun. That was a startling idea in its day. Everyone else believed that the earth was the center of the universe. As Christians, we hold to some startling beliefs ourselves. And the, questions, the question is, are those startling beliefs true? And why do we believe they're true? Why, why do we believe what we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ is more than a man, don't we? We believe that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. That's a startling idea. We may have gotten used to it, but if you think about it, it's a startling idea. We believe that in the flesh, He is the very visible expression of the image of the invisible God. It's a startling belief. But is it a ridiculous belief? Or is it a claim that can be supported by the evidence? We believe that Jesus Christ was and is the living Word of God incarnate. Incarnate meaning that He is the very expression of God in human flesh, in the body, in the form of a man. Today, as we continue in our series entitled, Why Do We Believe What We Believe?, we're going to be asking the question, Why do we believe that Jesus is God's living Word in the flesh? Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that Jesus Christ is the very expression of God Himself? Why do we believe? Well, we've, we've been going over this chart over the last uh, five weeks. This is the fifth week. And uh, we're, we've just been following this thought chart here, the no God, God chart. And the first question is, is there a God or isn't there a God? If there is no God at all, then there are certain implications. The implications are that human opinion is the highest authority. Therefore, there's five billion different highest opinions. And uh, there, therefore, there's no absolute truth. There's no meaning to life. And death is our only fate. Then if God is uh, real, if he does exist, then the question becomes, is he personal or impersonal? Is he the yin and the yang of the Eastern religions, the impersonal God, the force behind all things that has no will or emotion or is not affected by us? He's just, a, he's just the animating force of reality. And if that's true, he's impersonal. And if he's impersonal, he's amoral. He doesn't have moral judgments about things one way or the other. And if that's true, we just the only purpose to approach him is to exploit him. And the... And if that's true, there's really no ultimate meaning to life either. There's no absolute truth or meaning to life either. But if he's personal, then the question is, if he's personal, that is, he has mind, will, and emotion, the question is, does he communicate with us? And we looked at that question, does God speak to man? And, and then last week we looked at the question, is the Bible God's word? Is the Bible God's word? And this week we're going to look at, is Jesus the word in the flesh? The six questions we're going to be looking at in this series, again, by way of review and looking forward to next week, are these. Why do we believe that God exists? Why do we believe that God is personal and involves himself in our lives? Why do we believe that God communicates with us? Why do we believe that the Bible is God's word? Today we're going to be looking at the question of why do we believe that Jesus is God's word in the flesh? And next week we're going to be asking the question, why do we believe our response to Christ is a life or death matter? Why do we believe? Why do we believe Jesus alone among men is divine? Why do we believe he's the only begotten Son of God? That's a startling belief. 
That's a startling belief. Why do we believe that He alone fully contains the message of God to us? Why do we believe that there is life for us through faith in Him? Why do we believe that? This morning's uh, message is entitled, The Living Word, and we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and we'll also go to the end of the Gospel of John and look at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read these first 18 verses of the book of John, there is no more pregnant, uh, truth-filled words in all human history than in these 18 verses, Lord. And Father, in, in the end of his gospel, John explains why he wrote the whole rest of his gospel to defend those first 18 verses, to show that those verses were true. And Father, we just pray today that we would see in these verses that say such startling things, there is evidence for the truth of those verses being true. We pray, Father, that as we're transformed by the truth, Lord, that we, we might be influenced, impacted, and made better by it through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd bless the reading of your word this morning and that it would bless each one of us, that it would be living to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it says this. As you're turning there, John chapter 1, Beginning at verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came to witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he whom I said, He uh, who came before, comes before me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who has at the Father's side has made him known. John writes these 18 verses and then writes the rest of his gospel to give us evidence of why we should believe these 18 verses. We see that in the end of the gospel uh, in chapter 20, verses uh, 30 through 31, where John says, Jesus Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not recorded in this book. A lot of stuff, he says, we have seen and, and could testify to, but I haven't included them in here. But the things, but these are written, the things I have written, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, as I mentioned, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John make the most startling claims, really, in human history. There's nothing more uh, startling, if you want to put it that way, than the claims that John makes about Jesus Christ, about who He is and why He entered into human history. The rest of John's Gospel explains the reasons John lays out before us of why we should believe what he claims about Christ is true. What I'd like to do this morning is first I'd like to develop the, the claims that John makes about Jesus Christ. And then, secondly, I'd like to look at why we should believe what, um, what John says about Christ is true. You know, David Koresh, for example, said he's Jesus Christ. His followers believed him. Why did they believe it? Because he said he was. That's not good enough for me. That's not a good enough reason for me. If you say you're God, I want to see some God stuff. I'm not going to just go because you're a, a, a talented orator or a charismatic speaker. If you're God, prove it. That's my attitude. Uh, and finally, we're going to look at just briefly, and we're going to touch on this much more next week, the benefits of trusting in Christ. Well, what are the benefits of believing that Christ uh, is who he says he is and who John reveals him to be? The theme of this morning is this. Jesus is the living Word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God. Let's uh, spend some time taking apart a little bit of the the first 18 verses of John. The first verse here says, In the beginning was the Word. I underline the word was because it, according to um, Greek scholar Spiros Zodiades, transmits something in Greek that we really can't carry with us in English. But before I explain the word was, let's just look at the word word. The word word comes from the Greek word logos. It is where we get our English word logic. And what it means is rational thought, reasonable thinking, reasonable thought expressed in action. It means reasoned intelligence, reasoned thought and speech. In the beginning was thought, was God's mind, was God's reason, was God's logic, was in the beginning. And the word was here is interesting to look at because, as I mentioned, this word was, it's the word, word is in, and in is in, is, is in the imperfect, dirtive, imperfect tense of the word eme, to be. It is uh, the imperfect of the word to be, or the verb to be. And now what does that mean? Well, Unfortunately, we don't have an equivalent to that in English. So in order to try to explain it to you, I've, I've drawn, it out, drawn it out here on this diagram. So say, for example, you have past tense, present tense, future tense. If, if uh, like on the first little arrow here, something in past time, a point in time happens, it can have an impact up into the future. It might not have an impact, but it ha- could have a continuous impact into the future. But we don't have anything to express... Uh, in one word, the idea of eternal, that it's always has been. This imperfect uh, form of the verb in uh, means that 
it never it never came into existence. There wasn't a point at which it started. It, it's imperfect. It goes continuously into the past, and it continues to have an effect up until the present. And uh, so uh, we could be translating this verb. What I mean, this uh, yeah, this verb was. Uh, as we could say this, before the beginning, the word always has been. You know, that's the way we could say it in English. Before the beginning, the word always has been. The logos has always and will always be. The logos is eternal. It's preexistent. It exists before anything else exists. So what is the logos? What is the word? Well, we see in verses 1 through 6, we see... Uh, in the beginning was the Word, okay, so the Word, whatever it is, was in the beginning, and then it says the Word was with God, and then it says the Word is God, or was God, and uh, again, I'll explain, well, now I'll, I'll leave that for later. Uh, he was with God in the beginning, so we see that the Word is both uh, with God and is God, and we see that, that through Him, through the Word, all things were created. We see that the Word is identified as a Him, and uh, we, we go on to see that... Uh, in him, the word was life and light, the light of men. We see that the light shines in the darkness. We see that he's hard for the world to comprehend. And then we see in verse 6 that there's a man named John, John the Baptist, who isn't the word but came to testify about the word. So we begin to see that this is identifying Jesus Christ. In verse 14, we see further that it identifies Christ. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what do we have here? Uh, we have that the word uh, was before creation that the Word was with God, that the Word is God, that the Word created everything, that the Word is in the Word, there is life and light. We see the Word is a hymn. We see that that hymn is Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus Christ is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word here. This John is referring to Christ when he says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word, the eternal living Word of God. Jesus is the logos, the mind of God, the rationale, the logic of God, that is both with God and is God. Now, how can that be? How can you both be with God and be God at the same time? How is that possible? That's what we believe. We believe in a, a Trinitarian God where there's a distinction between the Son and the Father. But how can that be? How can we understand that? Well, again, if you look at the uh, words, it's very revelatory. Again, uh, and the word was with God. And when it comes down and says, and the word was God, both of those, again, are the same form of the word eme to be, the imperfect durative, which means that we could read it this way. The word always has been with God, and the word always has been God, and always will be God. Uh, now, how is that possible? Well, when you, you see I've highlighted the word with there, the word with is... The Greek preposition pros, and it's not the Greek preposition soon. The Greek preposition soon would be like two objects that are with each other. Like those chairs there are with each other. They're stationary objects that are in the same place and same moment in time with each other. The word pros carries with it the idea of motion, proceeding from or proceeding to something. So it's saying here that the, the, that the word proceeds from God or proceeds to God. It's, it's, a, it's an emanation that's coming out of God. It's, it's something that's with, in the sense of a movement uh, from him or to him. And uh, so I think the best way to illustrate this relationship of how the word can be both with God and be God, 
at the same time would be uh, this idea of sun, the relationship of the sun and its rays. We're here on earth and we say the sun is hitting us. The clouds have parted, the sun's hitting us. Well, we don't mean that the sun is literally colliding with the earth, but how do you distinguish between its rays, the rays of light that come from it, and from it itself? They're, they're both distinguishable and indistinguishable. They're not the same thing, but yet you can't separate the two. You can't separate the sun rays from the sun, but you can clearly see that they're distinguishable and indistinguishable at the same time. When we're being, the, the light from the sun is hitting us because the rays that are proceeding from the sun, the light that the sun gives off is hitting us. And uh, so in this way, we see this relationship where Christ is like the light that's coming out from the very throne room of God. He's proceeding He's with God. He's proceeding from God. And He is God. He's the rays that uh, make God visible. He's the pros that proceeds from God and makes God the Father visible to us. He is God the Son. The Son proceeds from the Father and brings the truth of God to us. let Let me try to illustrate it to you another way. The words I'm speaking carry with them the thoughts that I'm thinking, right? Now, the the words that I'm thinking, I mean, the words that I'm speaking are distinct from the thoughts I'm speaking. Rewind. The thoughts that I'm thinking are distinct from the words that I'm speaking, but they're indistinct also. The words carry the same thought. They carry the thoughts that are in my mind out to you. Without my words, you don't hear those thoughts. And some of my thoughts don't have words, because I don't want you to hear them. But uh, in in God's case, he's purely holy, and so all of his thoughts are worthy of putting into words. But can you see the relationship between thoughts and words are similar to this relationship between God and his son? You could say, my words are my thoughts. But you would also say, my words are distinct from my thoughts. You could say that my words are both uh, with my thoughts, and you could say my words are my thoughts at the same time. And this is the relationship between Christ and the Father. He is both with God and he is God. That's a pretty startling statement to say about some guy who was born in a poor house in Nazareth. To say that the Logos is Christ and he brings God's mind to us, and he reveals to us what without him would remain unknown. There is just a whole series of startling claims in these 18 verses, and we could go on for weeks unpacking the meaning of these verses. But let me just say in review, John is claiming that this man known as Jesus is the eternal living word of God, that he is himself God, that he created the universe, that light and life are what proceed from him. He says here that he's full of grace and truth, that he's the source of all blessing, he says in these passages, and that he is the one thing that makes the unknowable God knowable. That's what he's claiming about Christ. Now, there aren't any of these types of claims made about anybody uh, in human history outside of the loony bin. You know, even those who claim to be Christ, like David Koresher, the Reverend Moon, don't say they created everything. 
They don't say that they were pre-existent. They don't say they are eternal. They don't say these these startling things that are even said here about Christ. There is no reputable religious leader that anything like this has ever been made, uh, any claims like this have ever been made. No reputable anybody other than Christ that, that these startling claims have been made of. So why do we believe them? Why do we believe these things that John said about Christ are true? Jesus is the living word, the living word of God. Point number one is Jesus demonstrates his mastery over creation. Again, let's take a look at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's saying, um, in my gospel, I make the claim of the divinity of Christ. I make the claim that he's the Son of God. I make the claim that he is the promised Messiah, the Messiah that was promised throughout Old Testament scriptures. That's what I'm making this claim, John says. And I expect you to believe it because of what I as an eyewitness have told you about what I've seen. I've only included a few of the things that I've seen in my gospel but what I have told you is enough for you to come to a reasonable conclusion that Jesus is who I say he is. He makes the case for why we should believe the claim is true by what Christ did in his life and his ministry. John says Jesus' divinity was proven by the miraculous signs and wonders that he demonstrated. John says that most of the things that he did uh, that could only have been done by God I haven't included in my book, but the things I have written down are enough for you to trust what I'm saying is true, for you to believe what I claim about Christ is true. The things Jesus did and the things he taught proved what John taught about him was true. Jesus' public and historical ministry proved his divinity. A lot of people make a lot of claims, and uh, later you can kind of test those claims to see if they're really true by reality. I remember there was a guy one time who told me he was really a good baseball player growing up. He, he claimed uh, that he had, in fact, considered um, trying out for the pros at one time. And I had no reason to disbelieve him. He wasn't in bad shape. He was seemed fairly coordinated. I had no reason to disbelieve him until the first time I saw him play baseball. And after that, I thought, this, this is not only not possible that you were once almost ready to try out for the pros, but it's delusional that you think that. I don't know what, I mean, how he could have thought that that claim could have been demonstrated because he just did not have the skill. Not that I do, but I mean, I don't claim that I was ever going to be a professional ball player either. Uh, you know, that John's claim of Christ, on the other hand, was amply demonstrated to be true by Jesus doing God's stuff, by Jesus doing stuff that only God could do. He is the Logos, the embodiment of the mind of God, and his life-giving light proceeds from that. The historical embodiment of Christ in human form uh, was proved, uh, and that proof is in the text of the Bible. What would have to be uniquely true about Christ for him to be what John claims him to be? Well, he would have to have if he's God, he would have to show that he is supreme over all things, that he has power over nature, right? He'd have to show that he has power over the spiritual world. He'd have to show that he has authority over uh, all that he has created. He'd have to show that 
He is the eternal one, the, the one that can violate natural law without violating law. He's the one that would have to be able to show that. And further, not only would he have to show his power, he'd have to show his holiness, his goodness, that his teachings would have to be pure and they'd have to be edifying and that people who followed them would have to be blessed by them. And this is what John reveals in his text about Jesus Christ, that he's the real deal. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Son of God. He, he talks about the miracles that he's done, the, the um, water into wine, the woman at the well, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, just think about that woman at the well. She's never met this Jewish guy before. She's probably never even talked to a Jewish guy before. How does this Jewish guy know everything about her? Because he's God. He's omniscient. He's expressing his omniscience. He knows about all her marriages, knows about her life. Just met her with this one day drinking water. How is that possible if he's just a normal guy? What about the compassion when he looked upon the 5,000, you know, that they're hungry? No problem. Bring me a few loaves and some fishes. I don't really even need that, but just for, you know, a little stage prop. Here. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, he creates. Healing the blind man. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Um his own resurrection, all these things, the, the majesty of his teaching, all these things John talks about to validate uh, the truth of, of, um, of Christ, man who has power over nature, you know, that uh, he doesn't even resist human power over his own death because he's going to raise himself from the dead. If what John says about Jesus is true, then uh, what what John says about who Jesus is is also true. So should we believe John's testimony? Should we believe uh, one of his followers? Or should we believe a whole bunch of his followers? Uh, John testified concerning Christ on these matters, and so did a lot of other people who followed him and who were willing to die for the sake of the testimony that they gave concerning Jesus Christ. They would rather lose their life than to... to uh, withdraw the testimony that they had concerning Christ. But to me, there's something much more persuasive than the testimony of Jesus' friends. To me, it's much more persuasive what we hear from the lips of his enemies. If his enemies validate who he is, that means a lot more than if his friends do, because his friends naturally want to lift him up. But think about this. The enemies of Jesus Christ inadvertently testified to his own divinity. And let me show you how that how that works. We'll look at some various scriptures where this happened. Uh, let's first look at uh, Matthew. We're at Matthew chapter uh, 12, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 13. And it says here in verse 9, Going from place to place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to... Uh, was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus they asked him is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath he said to them if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will you not take hold of it and lift it out how much more valuable is a man than a sheep therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath then he said to the man stretch out your hand so he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. Now think about this for a second. The people that were trying to trap him, the people that were trying to bring him down, believed that he was a healer. 
They weren't trying to discount or discredit the fact that he was healing people all over the place. They were trying to do it. They were trying to get him to somehow break the Jewish law by healing on the Sabbath so they'd have something to accuse him of. They believed he was a healer. If his enemies believed he was a healer, why shouldn't I? Let me let me look at another example. Luke 13 verses 10 through 17. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a, and a woman was there who had been crippled by spirit by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, "Woman, you are set free from your infirmity." Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant. Now, why are they indignant if he didn't do anything? Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. They were mad because he had healed on the Sabbath. They believed he had healed. Otherwise, they wouldn't be mad. If he was a fraud, they would say they were indignant because he was being fraudulent on the Sabbath. Indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days. They are saying to the people who are getting healed by him, look, you know, if you want to be healed by Jesus, which we obviously think is happening, <clears throat> do it on six days, not on the Sabbath day. Uh, so uh, come and be healed on, on those days, not the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, uh, you hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. Not only was he healing, his teaching was unassailable. He was saying, look, if you're going to worry about me uh, loosing this woman on the Sabbath, then you're going to have to leave your animals at home all tied up they're not going to be able to eat or drink on the sabbath you're hypocrites you you do nice things to your animals on the sabbath day why wouldn't i be why wouldn't the law uh, prohibit me to do nice things to this woman so with both his healings and his teaching he is unassailable you have other examples like herod who when christ was brought to trial before herod herod was gonna was there to condemn him but you know what herod wanted to see before he condemned him he wanted to see his miracles. He was anxious to see Jesus do miracles. Herod believed he was a miracle worker. He wanted him to demonstrate his power before he brought any sentence against him. And then, of course, I want to leave you with uh, this one in terms of the enemies of Christ. Uh, what about the healing of Lazarus? He raised Lazarus from the dead. And I want to read you a passage that happens right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's in, in John chapter 11, verses 45 to 43 says this, beginning at verse 45 of John chapter 11, it says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus had done, healing, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead after being dead for several days, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him 
and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, for the scattered children of God, uh, for the Jewish nation, for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from this day on, they plotted to take his life. So, you know, here these guys are. They're seeing all these miracles, and they're afraid that the miracles are so persuasive that the whole nation's going to come after them. They're worried that the Romans will then resist that, and they'll lose their place. And unwittingly, the high priest prophesies, not understanding at all what he's saying, but prophesies that Christ is, in fact, going to be the one that would die for the nation, for the liberty, for the sins of the nations. He didn't know what he was saying when he said it, but uh, he did speak true words about the ultimate ministry of Christ. The point I'm making here is that if his enemies believe that he was uh, doing God stuff, what only God can do, uh, then I believe it. I certainly believe it because his friends uh, and those who are eyewitnesses were willing to die to maintain their testimony. But to me, it's even more persuasive when his enemies believe it. That's why I believe Jesus is the living word of God, because of what he did and what he does today. Jesus demonstrated his mastery over creation. In believing in the living word, we gain life, is point number two. Again, take a look at uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing you may have life in his name. I brought you the proof of Jesus to open up to you the possibilities that you might believe in him and that in believing you would have life in the name that you would experience the deliverance that the messiah has come to give you that you would be that open before you would be the door out of death and into swinging open into the life and eternal life that is in us in Christ Jesus in this moment of history where opportunity uh, where the opportunity of escaping out of the prison of sin and death was given to all men the consequence of putting our faith in that Messiah who gives us that opportunity is life itself. It's eternal life. It's the escape of the life of sin that leads to death. Will we act in the moment, the possibility of our liberation? Will we act in the time of God's grace is the question that we have before us. When I was thinking about this, I remembered a story uh, about a prison breakout in Iran. Uh, it was uh, captured in the book On the Wings of e- Eagles. And it's a story of, um, uh, of the, the Texas billionaire, Ross Perot, back in 1979. He had a couple of his employees who were working in Iran that were jailed in an Iran, Iranian jail for some contract dispute. And that's not a good place to be. And so he determined he was going to get them out of there. He was loyal to his employees, so Ross Perot was determined he was going to get them, break them out of that Iranian jail. So he hired a retired U.S. Army Special Services colonel uh, to lead a covert operation to break out his employees out of this out of this Iranian jail 
and to covertly lead them through uh, Iran in, in through uh, Iraq and into Turkey and out into freedom. Quite an endeavor to do uh, for just a, a, a small handful of people. So, you know, they, they were over there trying to figure out how they were going to break these guys out of jail. And uh, the guy who was leading the, the charge was Colonel Bull Simmons. And uh, there was, a, there was a, a turmoil in the streets around the jail where a, a group of pro-Ayatollah uh, pro uh, revolutionaries were starting to storm the prison wanting to release uh, political prisoners. So um, Colonel Simmons decided this is our moment seized the moment. He integrated his, his covert forces in with the uh, revolutionaries, had them in disguise as though they're part of the revolutionary force. They bust into prison with the revolutionary force and get the uh, employees of Ross Perot and bring them out of prison and go through this harrowing story of getting out of Iran and in through Iraq and in, ultimately into Turkey into freedom. The point I'm making is, is that there was a moment, an opportunity that had to be seized that he saw in this opportunity there was a chance for him to be able to get these people out. And he took the opportunity at the moment. If the moment had passed and those two were still in prison, he wouldn't have known how to get them out. He didn't have a plan. He took, he, he took the moment of time when that opportunity was there and he seized it. We have a moment in time of God's grace. We're in the hour of God's grace. We're in the time of our deliverance. We're in the time where we can grow in Christ. We're in the time when we can be led out through the perils of this world, through the, through the tricks of, of Iran, into freedom, into liberty. We're in a moment when liberty is there. And the question is, are we going to take the opportunity through faith in Christ? Are we going to trust in Christ? The Spirit calls, and the Spirit is calling. The Spirit is calling. Are you listening? Can you hear the Spirit saying, Come with me. Come with me into liberty into grace, into forgiveness. Come with me. Respond to me. Come to me. Come to me and and be free. Come to me out of your sin and be free in my grace. Or are you going to say, well, I can put it off. I enjoy my fallen life too much. I'm going to just wait here. I have some friends here in prison. I don't want to leave them there. I think I'll, I'll wait. Probably there will be a chance tomorrow too. So I'll wait today and do it tomorrow. There may not be another chance. When the Spirit calls, when the, when the Lord leads, it's time to go. When the door opens, it's time to follow. Time to go. Jesus is the living Word. Point number one, Jesus demonstrates His mastery over creation. And point number two, in believing in the living Word, we gain life. I'd like to conclude this morning just by reading from John chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you know him and have seen him. That's a startling claim. That's a claim that really irritates the non-Christian world. Muhammad is not the way to God. Buddha is not the way to God. Yoga is not the way to find out what God is like. If you know Christ, you know the Father. This is the claim out of Christ's own mouth. Is it true? 
We believe it's true, and we believe there's ample logical evidence to believe the Logos of God is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you, you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us through the Word, through the Logos, through the Word incarnate, through Jesus Christ. And the question is, will we listen? Are we listening? Will we listen this week to your Word? Will we listen this week to the voice of, of your truth through Scripture? Will we give ourselves to hear from you? You are speaking, and the time for us to hear is now. Will we do now what we, can, what we won't be able to do later? Will we listen to your word? Will we act on your word? Will we be led by your word? Will we be delivered out of the prison of death and, and despair and into the liberty of hope and truth and light and life and eternal, eternal life? Lord, it wouldn't have been good enough for them just to have escaped that prison in Iran and be left somewhere in Iran. It's not good enough for us to just be uh, forgiven for our sins and escape the penalty of our sins. We need to be led out of uh, out of the milieu of our sinful desires. We need to be led into the liberty of your truth, into the total liberty of doing what we want because we want to do what you want. Lord, give us your desires. Heal us and feed us in your word. In Christ's name we pray.